Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. that there is an 11.30 service, if, you, if no one's heard about that. Well, in fact, there's a 9 a.m. service, and then an 11.30, and most people who do not attend church are more likely to attend church at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning than any other time in the week. So for you veterans, here's another interesting mass comm fact. When people perceive 80% capacity, they think it's too crowded and they don't come back. So some should make a missional move maybe to, because <laughs> you're old veterans and you can go worship anytime. You're going to church on Sunday morning. So we're glad you're here. You folks on the back row, I'm sorry. That is really tight back there. But thank you for enduring that. That's good. And sorry if I bumped into you or knocked your head around or spilled your coffee or any of that. We're going to talk about mental health this morning. Well, actually, we're going to talk about diligence. But I think what Paul is talking about in Galatians 6 as he reaches these concluding moments of the letter, he gives those lists of instructions. And the diligent that he speaks about is about self-examination and each of us carrying in our own load. And, and I think what he's referring to is that there's a destination of our self-examination and carrying our own load. And so we're going to kind of sit in that space. We talked last week about attitude and we talked about what it would mean in this season to see differently. To think about what it means for us because there is this truth that what we see is what we say. Jesus said, if your eyes are light, then your whole body is light. But if your eyes are dark, how great is the darkness? And what he means in that statement is, if you look at the world through eyes of light, then you see a lot of good things. But if you look through eyes of darkness, then you feel depressed and overwhelmed and sad. And what we see has a lot to do with what we say. Out of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do you see? What is around you? Because we've been recipients of grace, because how God deals with our failure and our weakness and our chronic problems and our issues is with forgiveness, restoration, and grace. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He, we can come to him again and again and again and again and repent and ask for forgiveness, and he forgives us. That's his response. Not, again? Really? <laughs> and then he says... As I have loved you, that's how I want you to love each other. And so in the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says, listen, what I want you to do is when you see somebody who's fallen over, I want you to be a part of the restoration team. Are we? Yes. How often are we more a part of the criticism team or the judgment team or the gossip team? <laughs> but we ought to be a part of the restoration team. There ought to be a deep prejudice in us. And then he says, not only should be a part as you look for the folks that need to be restored, but also do you have eyes for the folks that are overloaded? Carry one another's burdens. And in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ. I don't know how you work. This is how I work. I am so preoccupied with my own journey and my own life and my own issues that I sometimes have a hard time seeing anyone else. I mean, I see the annoying people. 
Because they stand out, don't they? They make themselves known in your journey. They get your attention. But how often in my journey do I have eyes and a spirit to see someone in need of restoration? And I asked you last week, because I really believe this. When we come to church together and we talk about stuff, most all of us give intellectual assent to what's being said. Now, you don't always say amen, but I believe you're with me. Yeah, good. Wow. Very impressive. We give intellectual assent. That's called value. We, we intellectually assent to the value of what's being said. Virtue is putting it into practice. And so I challenged you last week. I want you to take a piece of paper. I want you to set up something on your phone. I want you to begin a list of names. Maybe they're people that, you know, immediately when we think about relationship, we feel an ouch. And that's a good indicator that maybe something's not working quite right. And maybe they ought to go on the list. Because in this season, what we're going to do is we're going to pray over them. We're going to pray. We're going to go, God, I think maybe there's some restoration work. I want you to bring names to my mind to put on this list where maybe there's some restoration work that needs to be done. And maybe what that means is I'm going to speak words of encouragement to this person every time I see them. Maybe that means that this is a person that feels overburdened, and I'm going, to, I'm going to come around them in this season because what I see is what I say. And when I see God's grace given to me, and I feel like I'm the recipient of this sort of unbelievable love, then I, I sort of have a heart of gratitude, and when I have a heart of gratitude, I have a spirit of thanksgiving, and when I have a spirit of thanksgiving, I can say grace over people. I can say grace. But what I see is what I'll say. What are you seeing in this season? I don't want us just to get to Thanksgiving Day and sit around a table and pretend to be thankful. I want to nurture hearts of Thanksgiving. Because we should. Not an ought. If we look at the grace of God, we should be filled with thanks. We should be filled with thanks. So today we kind of dive in and we think about Galatians 6, 4 through 6. Let me read it to you. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Each person should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with the instructor. So we're thinking about what that might look like to follow along in this process. So Dave Ramsey says that your money is wild... If you do not train it, it will run away. <laughs> Isn't that true? Do you ever open your wallet and you just go, I, I don't know what happened. If that's true of your money, how much more true is that of your thoughts? Your thoughts and my thoughts are wild. And if we do not train them, they go crazy. I mean, they just get all over the place. Now, I realize that in a, on a day like this, I am going to do some, you know, sort of self-revelation. So, you know, if you want to leave me hanging, that's really up to you. But I don't just think this is true of me. I think it's true of most of us. Do you ever have conversations in your own brain with your own thoughts? I mean, do you ever have things like, I don't know why I'm thinking that. I'm not sure I should be thinking that. I should be thinking something else. I don't know who's up there thinking that thought because that's not the thought I want to be thinking. But there's other thoughts running around up there. And I'm not sure those are appropriate thoughts. And I think they should be corrected. And so the other part of my brain is talking. And then sometimes there's a third voice in there somewhere. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Isn't it weird when your thoughts can talk to each other in your own brain in real time? 
while you're seriously being annoyed with someone else? That's called multitasking right there. The number of parallel things that can be going on in my brain at the same time. And unless I, with intentionality, sit down and I invite the Holy Spirit to help shape what's going on up there, then God doesn't really force me to think certain thoughts. And I don't know about you, but, but I've sort of always thought, well, that's just how I'm wired. <laughs> you know? And I grew up in a, a sort of crisis-oriented kind of theology, you know, you, you need to commit your life to Christ, come to the altar and commit, and you do. There is a crisis decision in that. I'm inviting Christ to my life, I'm confessing my sins, I'm receiving forgiveness, I'm, I'm going to follow Christ. That's a crisis. But somewhere I got the message that in that crisis, God fixed me. And I have found that not to be true. Anybody else find that? That I didn't get all fixed. And I wish God would do things differently. I really wish when I asked, God would fix me. That I didn't need to be a participant in the fixing. Because I find that I am the weakest partner in the covenant of fixing me. <laughs> so I wish that spiritually God would just hit me with a bolt of lightning and fix me. I love that, you know. Just have a renewed mind. Yes, I'll take one now. Yeah. Spiritual lobotomy would be awesome. Amen? But that's not really how it works, is it? Instead, God invites us into a process where we practice the virtues of our faith. We don't just practice the values and wait for God to do something. We participate. We participate in the practices that make our minds whole. So much is this important in the story of Scripture that Paul devotes a significant amount of time to it. Philippians 4.8, finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Is that descriptive of what's going on up there? And yet Paul seems to think somehow we're not the victims of our thoughts, <laughs> that in collaboration with the Holy Spirit, we are training our thoughts. I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, Dr. Brad Bursch shared with us a, 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 a talk about how our brains form. I've been terrified ever since. What he said was, our brains grow until we're about 12 years old, so we have a lot of, our brains get bigger. Therefore, we have room to think new thoughts and do new things. And then about that age, you got all the brain you're going to get. If I'm messing this up, Brad, you can fix people later. Just go to Google it, and I'm sure it'll all be accurate. <laughs> and then from about age 12, you got all the brain. So then your brain becomes this very efficient organ, which on its own trims away things you're not using and builds a superhighway of things you are using. Now, that is a scary thought. So in other words... Whatever automatically I'm thinking about, my brain is helping build a superhighway to help me think more about that. Just think for a minute about what you automatically think about when you're not paying attention. Your brain is going to trim away other things to make you do that more efficiently. Ugh, I already don't like this sermon. And things you're not thinking, it will trim away. To make your brain as efficient as possible. Where's the gratitude? 
Where's the sense of grace? What we see is what we say. How we practice training our thoughts. And Paul seems to be convinced that we have some part to play in that. That there is a process by which we're testing our own actions. We're, we're checking in. We, we want our egos to be in check. We, we, we're, we're doing and carrying our load. Think about things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Those are the things. Philippians 2.5, in relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We're to adopt the same thinking as Christ Jesus. That's, that's a tall order. That's a big deal. That's a big pursuit. Romans 12.2, don't conform to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will. It is good and pleasing and perfect will. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the passage again. I'm going to give you four thoughts about it. Then we're going to jump into some real practical stuff about your brain. And then we're going to come back to these at the close of this service. So here we go. Galatians 6, 4. Each one should test their own actions, and then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. I see four big thoughts here that I think matter. Number one, we should diligently test our own actions. Number two, we should diligently nurture a healthy self-image. Number three, we should diligently work not to compare ourselves to others. And number four, we should diligently carry our own load. I think when we start to think about what this leads to and what it means, I think Paul's inviting us to be in a place called maturity. In fact, we understand from Paul's writings that, that he's big into this idea. We just studied 1 Corinthians 13 a couple of weeks ago. And in it, as you know, Paul talks about love. He has a digression right in the middle of the chapter. And in it, he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child and I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That he seems to tie together the idea of love and maturity, of putting away childish things, of growing up. The self-examination, we look at ourselves. In another place, he says, look at yourself with sober judgment. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. And so he's inviting us to this place called maturity. So I, I thought I would do a little research. And I came across an article. Now, these two articles that I'm going to share with you are from psychologists. But I am astonished. They could be written as a devotional. <laughs> so I want you to hear them that way. Prominent mind coach John Dabrowski offers this exhaustive definition of maturity. This might be the part where we could do some of that, you know, self-examination. Maturity is the ability to control your anger and settle your differences without violence or resentment. Maturity is patience. It's the willingness to pass up short-term pleasure for long-term gain. It's the ability to sweat it out in spite of heavy opposition or discouraging setbacks. It's the capacity to face unpleasantness and frustration without complaining or collapsing. Maturity is humility. It's being big enough to say, I was wrong. And when you are right, never needing to say, I told you so. Maturity is the ability to make a decision and follow through with it instead of exploring endless possibilities and doing nothing with any of them. Maturity means dependability keeping your word, and coming through in a crisis. 
The immature are masters of alibi. They're the confused and the disorganized. Their lives are a maze of broken promises and former friends and unfinished business and good intentions. Maturity is the art of being at peace with what you can't change, having the courage to change what you can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's good stuff. In the article, he mentions a book by Dr. Steve Peters entitled The Chimp Paradox. This is what Dr. Peters writes. Our chimp is always lazy. He says that your brain resting is your inner chimp. It's your monkey brain kind of thing. You understand where we're coming from? I know none of you good people have monkey brains. But I seem to identify with this. Our chimp brain is always lazy. Doesn't want to work hard. Prefers chocolate to healthy food. Amen. <laughs> we'll always do the easy things first and always wants the pleasure first and then the pain. It will lose its temper, give up easily, and break promises. Dombrowski concludes, maturity is the opposite of the chimp. It's doing the tough stuff first. It's controlling anger. It's going the extra mile and admitting wrongdoings. It's being at peace and content, and it's doing the right thing without complaining. Developing maturity is an important task in life and comes over time. The sooner we develop maturity, the sooner we'll start living a happier and more fulfilled and content life. You and I are invited into this space. We're, we're invited into this self-examination in which we, we connect with the understanding that in collaboration with the Holy Spirit, I want on a daily basis to sit down, invite God into this inner place where I really live into this place where my thoughts form. I want him to be way down in there because this is really who I am. This is really what's happening. These feelings in here and these thoughts. Do I slow down long enough to ask God to invade this space? I'll have to slow down. My thoughts are wild. If I do not train them, they will run around on their own. I think God wants to be in that space with you, and he wants to be in that space with me. Rafael Rodriguez, a mental health clinician, offers 10 characteristics of maturity. When I read this article, I found them to be tremendously convicting, so I'll share them with you. Mature people, number one, take responsibility for their actions. They admit their errors without trying to cover them up. Mature people, number two, react with equanimity. They're even-keeled. They're fair. Even when they experience aversive scenarios, they're not dominated by fear. They don't panic. They have the ability to control their emotions without distorting them. What's astonishing is how much this list sounds like someone who is Christ-like. Number three. Mature people put into practice what they learn. Maturity has to do with intelligence, and intelligence is, among other things, the capacity to learn from experience. Thus, mature people have an awareness of their own lives, and they use those things to make informed decisions. They don't just complain. They tend to be optimistic. Number four, they know their limits, and they correctly calculate the reasonable risks associated with an action. They innovate without forcing anything. They don't bite off more than they can chew. They are daring, but prudent. 
Number five, they take into account their influence over others. And they don't try to take advantage of their positions of power. They don't cheat. Additionally, mature people know how to listen. They aren't self-centered. They consider other people. They're conscious that they can learn from others. And they realize that they are a part of a much broader world than the one they're living in. Number six, they're resilient in the face of difficult situations that arise in their lives. In fact, they know how to harness positive potential out of negative experiences. And they use those negative experiences to strengthen themselves. Number seven, they know how to manage their life in a self-sufficient manner that's in accord with their abilities. They know how to ask for help without appearing helpless. They don't position themselves as victims, but rather as people who know how to collaborate mutually with others. Number eight, they don't use emotional blackmail. When they need to express their needs and request that other people take on responsibilities, they communicate in a style that is marked by assertiveness. They're capable of conveying authority without ever being forceful. Number nine, they know how to enjoy themselves, and they make an effort to do so. They put aside time for pleasure, and they find sufficient space in their lives for entertainment. Number ten, they fulfill their responsibilities and obligations. They don't jeopardize job security and other sources of stability in their lives without a powerful rationale for doing so. They're formal. Dignified, confident, and they know how to take care of themselves. I don't know about you, but when I listen to all of that, it sounds like Christ-likeness. And I think about the phenomenon that these are modern psychologists. In fact, one of these people is a a mind coach. And that mind coach travels all over the world talking to corporate leaders about what it would mean to be mature. I'm not sure what fruit that's bearing. I, I just think in the life of the church... We ought to be folks that talk about maturity. The Bible spends up long before there was psychology. The Bible already understood the the importance of you and I growing into a place of maturity. And let's be honest with one another. We do not live in a culture that displays maturity. I mean, when you flip on the TV, or you read an article, or you browse... The internet, maturity is not what pops out at you. Most of us would have been severely punished in elementary school had we spoken to one another the way supposed leaders in our culture speak to one another. And it's not much better in the church. But it ought to be. And it doesn't get much better when we spiritualize without taking steps towards our own growth and maturity. When you think about the history of evangelicalism and the rise of this movement in the 18th century, in which folks were called back into a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ, you think about the great names of the people who were leading that movement, it said that there are, 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 were evangelists in that day that spoke literally to millions of people every week. That the movement was so powerful within the culture that literally millions of people, thousands at a time, showed up to listen to these great orators speaking about this new dynamic of getting into relationship and growing up and changing, by the way, the world and society. Some of those in reflection... 
at the end of that journey would look back and say, I preached to millions. John Wesley changed the world because he invited people to practices that changed them from the inside out. We can hear a lot of things. We can be a part of these massive movements and we can go, yes, 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 yes. But until we sit in space and invite God to search us, to, to, to train our thoughts, to grow us in maturity, is anything really changing? And if I'm just downright honest, what I keep thinking in my spiritual journey is that at some point I'm going to pray the right prayer and God's going to fix me. But I'm afraid he needs my daily cooperation. He needs my daily participation. He needs me to find a quiet place in which to invite him into space. And so as I thought about this sermon and I thought about what we were doing, I thought we could talk about this. Wouldn't that be awesome? We'll talk about maturity. <laughs> or... We could close the service by actually creating space for the Holy Spirit to talk to us. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Dear Jesus, would you help us to create some space in our thoughts right now? where we might test our own actions. That it's odd in a church service to kind of stop everything and listen. Would you please examine each one of us? In this season of Thanksgiving, would you, alongside this list we're making of names, would you invite each of us to a space daily where we enter into this little discipline? Help me examine not only my actions, but my motives and my attitudes. Help me to examine my thoughts and my choices and my reactions and my responses as I move out into this week in which our country will be deeply divided. The words that will get spoken will not necessarily reflect maturity. Search me. Examine me. Make me aware of my own thoughts and my own words. Search me. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you help me to nurture a healthy self-image? Help me not to think more highly of myself than I ought. Help me to see myself as you see me. Help me also not to think less of myself than I ought. In Paul's words, help me to take pride in how you have created me. 
and the gifts that you've put inside of me. Would you remind each one of us, whether we're in this room, whether we're online, whether we're catching up later in the week, that we are a creation of the divine God. I know we spend a lot of time breaking down theology and we spend a lot of time talking about things we don't necessarily agree on theologically, but sometimes there's big theology that we ought to agree on. This book teaches us that each of us are a child of the living God, a unique creation designed and gifted by you. Would you help us to see that truth? To not think more of ourselves than we should, but certainly not to think less of ourselves. We are gifted children of the living God, and you have prepared in advance good works for us to do. Forgive us when we come so preoccupied with our own thoughts and our own needs and our own journey that we forget that you have gifted us in order to change the world in your name. Help us to look up and to look out. Help us not to compare ourselves to others. As we think about what it means to be healthy and what it means to be mature, would you help each of us first to be aware of how often our eyes are on others? And how getting our eyes on others creates an inner world that's unsafe and dissonant. Would you help me to let go of looking at others and making comparisons? Bring to my mind the people that I so often think about and to whom I frequently compare myself. Remind me that their journey is their journey and not mine. Remind me that you have set out a journey just for me. Help me to run with perseverance the race marked out for me and to fix my eyes on you, the author and perfecter of my faith. Help each of us to carry our own load. In your gentleness, show me the place where I am responsible. Show me where I have allowed others to be responsible for my load. Show me how to move forward without excuse and without deflecting. Change me into the likeness of Christ. Grow me. Help me to be moving closer and closer to a maturity that allows me to think of things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Help me to move towards a mindset that is like that of Christ Jesus. Do work in me. So somewhere in the journey, I would see and understand that by this process of discipleship, you have created in me a transformed mind. Do this work in me in this season so that I might find in myself a thankful heart. And that from that thankful heart, I might say grace over every person in my circle of care. In Jesus' name, 
I pray these things. And everyone said together. We're going to close this service sharing the Lord's Supper. If you're at home, I invite you to get your elements. You don't need to be a member of the church. If you didn't receive elements when you came in, just lift your hand. Our ushers will make sure you have them. Just that you've confessed sins and received forgiveness. It seems so fitting that on this day as we self-reflect, this is not just about what we do. It's about how the Holy Spirit works in us. And I think God gave us this image so that we could visibly see a moment in which we say, come on in here and do the work in here from the inside out. Do things beyond what I can think about or know about or understand. Prompt me to grow. Prompt me to maturity. Prompt me to Christ-likeness. Prompt me to excellent thinking. Prompt me to a Christ-like mind and spirit and heart. And with the nourishment of your broken body and spilled blood, empower me to say grace. God, we're thankful. We enter in this moment preparing our hearts for this table. We confess to you our sins. We recognize how important it is that we confess and repent and how faithful you are to forgive us and cleanse us. And now I pray that you would apportion grace to each person as there is need. We dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life, take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. blood of our Lord Jesus Christ which was shed for you preserve you blameless unto everlasting life take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful Lord we pray that you would take what we have heard and participated with together and you would use it to build your kingdom in each of our lives and to change this world in your name we go from this place responding to your word with the full intention that we will say grace. We give you thanks in your name. And everybody said, will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.